Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Culture Bunker, your weekend pick-me-up of music, film, TV and whatever else we can lay our hands on. My name's Andrew Harrison and today, via Zint Berliner, we're delighted to be joined by Jay Wilgus Esquire of the magnificent British band Public Service Broadcasting to talk about their new album Bright Magic, an homage to the past, present and future of Berlin and much more besides. And I'm Alex Andreu, or player 457 if you prefer, we'll be talking about Squid Game, the Kafkaesque Korean fantasy, where desperate people agree to play a series of children's games for the highest imaginable stakes. What has made it the Netflix hit of the moment? Plus, we have new music from Mancunian electronic explorers WH Lung. It's a bit new order, you will be thrilled to hear. And we relax and float down streaming with new documentary The Beatles and India, which follows the Hey Jude hitmaker's spiritual journey to Rishikesh in 1968. Will we experience cosmic revelations? Ashram, thank you, ma'am. It's the Culture Bunker. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this week's Culture Bunker. We have two special guests and one of them is a veteran of our previous incarnation, Big Mouth. Jerry Colgan is one of a kind, both a best-selling author of romantic fiction, The Christmas Bookshop, out on 28th of October, and an author of science fiction, including Doctor Who spin-offs under her Ian M. Banks-style pseudonym, J.T. Colgan. Openly Scottish, she won Celebrity Mastermind in 2018 with a score of 21 points. And I can reveal she also has a TARDIS tattoo. Hello, Jenny Colgan. How are you and where are you? I am in Fife, which is uh, very wet. That's a terrible cliche. It's <laughs> beautiful summer in Scotland. The fact mm-hmm. that it's just raining just now is like really surprising. Right. All the way from Fife. Uh, we are about to enter the Christmas book market. How gladiatorial is the world of romantic fiction in which you are? Are you like, you know, I'm going to knock Marion Keys off her pedestal. Very McFarlane, you're going down. Sally Rooney. <laughs> Here comes the pain, Sally Rooney. <laughs> I, I, somebody did once ask me once, you know, if you were kind of world king, what would you do? And I said, well, after I'd killed all other writers. <laughs> <laughs> They'd meant it as a very lighthearted Christmas conversation. I regret it now. Um, it, do you know, let me tell you a funny thing, because this year's book I wrote really for my daughter, who loves all these Netflix stories uh, that you get at Christmas time about princes in disguise. And I thought, I'm going to write something for my daughter. And so it's about a kind of Norwegian, a very posh Norwegian that has to work in a, a kitchen in a big hotel. And of course, he's useless at it and has to disguise his identity. And it's kind of funny and it's kind of silly. And I thought, I really like it. This is the kind of thing, you know, might Netflix be interested? And <laughs> Netflix, you may or may not have noticed the last couple of days, is this, has instead made a film about a <laughs> author who moves to Scotland. <laughs> yes. Is it like the Colgan Romano Clef type of thing? It's just completely depressing that oh. instead of taking my lovely Netflix book, they're, they're making a book about, <laughs> making a film about my life <laughs> for which, one, I earn nothing, but two, I am played by Brooke Shields, so I'm personal. Well, that's not bad. That's that's all right. So, I mean, you've been in this, this brutal red blood game since, you know, for, for over 20 years now. Have you narrowed down the science of what makes great romantic fiction work? We don't call it chick fic anymore. That's demeaning. What makes it work? And has, has the demands of the audience changed since you've been in this game? Yeah, they have changed a bit. Um, and I think, I mean, it's hideous. And I realise that every particular strand of culture is going through something very, very similar. But it is quite aching to look back at kind of older books and see how white they are, and how young everyone is, and how able-bodied and without children they all are. So, the, you know, the, the, this kind of a maturity that, that comes with writing slightly more and more interesting 
people as you get older. But I think what's so interesting about the way that everybody does it, whether they're, they, they acknowledge it or not, is that the fundamental love stories, I don't just mean in my kind of stuff, but in even books like Birdsong or that kind of thing, the, the fundamental kind of happy ending is such a deep-rooted instinct in like all human beings. We watched, we, sh- we made the mistake last night of showing the kids Gallipoli, which is brilliant. The people but to we cheer them up. brilliant. Um, <laughs> but it's basically about two boys falling in love and then he just kills one of them and that's the end of the film. And we all had to watch like some friends to recover. Jenny, you combined two of your great loves in 2015 when you wrote Resistance is Futile, the science fiction romantic fiction thing. Is there a future in science fiction romance where, you know, rather than the kind of constructed fantasy world being the entire attraction, it is actually about feelings and happy endings in space with aliens and robots? I I would say from the sales figures, probably not. (laughs) I'm glad I had a goal. I love writing it. (laughs) I um, I, I, I feel really guilty every year because um, in this country, it was published as it looks very different with a different name. But in certain other countries like France and Spain, they just published it with the same nor- covers that I normally have for my mm. romantic fiction. Mm. Hugh, various <laughs> <and> fury. That's <laughs> hilarious. I have yeah. been at book fairs in France where uh, like, kind of, where French women have come over and they've pointed me out to their friends and they've gone, so we like, you know, you can have that one, that one, pass that, not that one. You know, no, this is the one. And so every six months I get a royalty statement for Resistance is Futile in French, and I think, oh, God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so it's just the amount of days I've ruined from people that bought it by mistake. Well, I thought it was jolly good. This is one where a woman falls in love literally with an alien, and it, it explores these things in a very good way. So the French are wrong about that and so many other things. Jenny is going to be with us throughout the show. Alex, who else is joining us? Bright Magic is the fourth album by Public Service Broadcasting. It's a tribute to the city of Berlin, mixing soundscapes, motoric, industrial imagery, luminous electronics and a pinch of Bowie's low album. We absolutely loved Bright Magic when we reviewed it a few weeks ago, which is just as well, (laughs) or today would be bloody awkward, (laughs) since we have the band's prime mover, Jay Wilgus Esquire, with us in the studio. Hello, Jay. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Hello. We're going to talk about the album in detail in a bit, but it's a very European record, obviously. How much did Brexit make you want to write a record about the city that is the centre of Europe? Well, I think I had the idea to do this probably even before Brexit was was a reality, but it definitely um, impacted the choice of when to do it because, you know, I kind of moved out there in early 2019 when the gates were closing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and the chance of getting over there, you know, taking all our equipment there and setting up shop and kind of, you know, living there without too much bureaucracy. The Germans do love a bit of bureaucracy, so you're not going to get around it entirely. But but without too much bureaucracy, without endless carnet forms and customs, this, that and the other, you know, all of that was kind of the net was closing in. Um, so it was it was kind of it was, you know, let's take advantage of, of our, our chance to be kind of, you know, citizens of nowhere for a, a little bit longer and uh, and go and spend some time in Berlin, write this record and then and then come home at the end of it, you know, without any of the multiple headaches that we're currently witnessing. And, and how did you find it? Did you come back supporting Brexit for full-heartedly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really narrowed tired my... tired of sauerkraut. <laughs> narrowed my scope and just, you know, you know, lessened my outlook on life and, you know, <laughs> reduced my empathy, all, the, all these kind of things, yeah. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I, I recommend, you know, 
I was 38 when I moved out there, I think. Uh, it's hard to remember dates these days, but um, yeah, 37 maybe when I moved out there. And, you know, as, a, as an adult, I hadn't really spent much time in any other city, living in any other city than London. You know, obviously I've, mm. I've traveled widely both for work and been lucky enough to for, for pleasure as well. But to actually spend a bit of time more than a few days or a week, you know, spend six months in a place and, and really kind of experience it and, and see different ways of doing things, especially when all you've really known is London, is a good thing for people, I think. It was a good thing for me. It's mind-altering, yeah. I agree. Um, now, you're taking Bright Magic on tour in two weeks. Do you get pre-tour jitters, especially after, you know, being locked up in a, in an apartment for a bit? Do you have sort of dreams that your samplers don't work or that oh, you're God. naked on stage and forgot all the lines? <laughs> I have these dreams regularly. Well, about me being naked. That's everybody's dream. All the time. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, no, I, I do have anxiety dreams about it, yeah. Um, and they're always about, you know, I've left my laptop at home or, you know, or, or we spend too long coming back on again and everyone's left. <laughs> <laughs> it's really like nakedly, obviously deeply insecure personality that is just being laid bare in these dreams. But yeah, um, that's one of the reasons I, I start to think maybe the pandemic, we were turning a corner because I start to have those dreams again. I didn't have them for ages, you know, during lockdown. And then then all of a sudden I was back at Brixton and no one had turned up. So um, I was like, <laughs> really? hang on, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's, it's actually, you know, we can play again. Um, and yeah, we're, we're looking forward to getting back out there. A, li- a little bit nervous because we, you know, when it's unfamiliar material, you're always a bit more on edge because um, you want to get to the point where you can kind of your muscles are doing half the job for yeah, you yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's really that's a long way off so we'll be a bit on edge but yeah looking forward to it and there's a big german leg to your tour as well you're doing hamburg munich cologne and of course berlin um the album is a very romantic poignant vision of the city have you had any reaction from german fans about what the record says um i haven't seen a great deal i mean we, we're not we're not massive well, we're not massive anyway, but we're not massive in Germany, certainly. Um, You're massive in my dream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good golly. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, you know, what, what I have seen from abroad, I, I gather the reviews have been all right. I haven't kind of, you know, pulled over them in detail, but I think it's kind of been been received in the spirit in which it was intended, which is this this kind of... Yeah, sort of half-imagined, half-real, sort of, as you say, quite romantic vision of, of the city as this kind of creative uh, magnet and sort of this this prism for, for creativity and for creative people to kind of be drawn to and, and you know, try and reinvent themselves as, as part of that process. So um, I think people have kind of got on board with it. We haven't had any outright hostile reactions, I don't <laughs> think. So that's, you know, that's kind of the, the low bar, but that's, that's the bar I set. More with Jay and Jenny later, but before then, a little reminder. You can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support us on Patreon. You'll also get smart merchandise and extras too, like our star guests choosing favourite records of all time. Jay Wilgus will be making his choice later in the show, but first, here he is with Public Service Broadcasting. From the album Bright Magic, here is the glorious Im Licht.
Jim Licht from uh, Bright Magic. So for listeners who don't know, Public Service Broadcasting made their debut in 2012 with probably the only Rethian rock and roll album in history. Inform, educate, entertain, the old BBC slogan. And the record used samples of newsreels, public information films to create this kind of image of Britain's past. It featured everything from the film The First of the Few about the Spitfire to the dawn of colour TV. Jay, you've, you've evolved a lot since then, and those kind of samples are less a feature of it. But how did that way of working start? Did, what, did you suddenly find a pile of tapes in a shed somewhere and start fiddling? Well, I guess the equivalent, yeah, online. You know, I heard about some BFI stuff being released online for the first time. And, and you know, I was just making music for my own entertainment, having abandoned any hopes of, of a, you know, any kind of career as a musician after multiple failed ventures. Um, and just started making music for my own, you know, amusement and and thought some of these samples could maybe be liberally sprinkled across it to give it a bit of personality and yeah that's all it really was at first it was a bit of kind of window dressing a bit of character but it actually did have vast personality you felt like you were summing up the entire history of britain and putting it into sort of 10 tracks or 12 tracks or whatever it was well i mean yeah the first record is definitely quite scattershot isn't it i mean it's not just britain i mean there's all kinds of american public information films in there so it's 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 kind of whatever we could lay our hands on there's always been a kind of very boring pragmatism at the heart of this (laughs) band so yeah um yeah, that that was kind of a bit less focused, I suppose, narratively. But I think I think what you witness looking at you know the the progress from or lack of progress from the first record to the fourth is is you know the kind of the concept in general being examined and sort of questioned. Yeah. And how can we do this differently? Other ways we could explore things. You know, are we tied to this concept of just using samples in this way, or can we can we work in other ways? Just well, kind was, of evolving it. Yeah. Well, one of the one of my favourites on that very early stuff is the track called Lit Up which features an infamous radio broadcast uh, from the Spithead Review from HMS Nelson, where the naval officer and commentator Thomas Woodruff is blind drunk. And he goes into these beautiful raptures as if he's having a kind of an ecstatic vision. It's like words where the fleet's lit up. It's like fairyland. It's, and th- this is this guy basically ended the guy's career at the time, but now seems kind of almost admirable and wonderful, like this guy's having an out-of-body experience at the Spithead Review. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing piece of audio, and I think it's one of the few that we just kind of put on there, mostly unedited. I, I moved a couple of things around, but he just kind of burbles away throughout the track, yes. in a very kind of drunken, <laughs> drunken way. And most of it's nonsense. But then you do get these moments of sort of incredible lucidity, like he just says at one point, "There's nothing between us and heaven. There's nothing at all." Yeah, like, where does that come from? And he says something like, "You know, no magician could have waved his wand with more alacrity." And you think, <laughs> "I'll have some of what you're on." He definitely slurs a little bit more than you did there. Well, there you <laughs> go, waved his wand. <laughs> One, yeah. So as you say, the methodology got more focused. You made the, the race for space using samples from the 60s space race, obviously, and the great album Every Valley, where you worked in Ebervale with Welsh choirs, singers including James Dean Bradfield, for this kind of giant work about the decline of the mining areas and you know what was done to those places and, and is there a future or a way out will progress save those areas? I mean, these are massive topics. Do you start with a theme and go, I will, because most bands, and I've been talking for 30 years, they didn't say, well, we just start making stuff and we find out what it's about afterwards. Do you start with a big theme? Yeah, I think I think for those records, yeah, yeah, this, you know, the space race again, again, part of that was because I knew that the NASA audio collection was was massive and available. Mm. So part of that was that pragmatism again. But I did fall in very luckily into the Soviet stuff being available. But you know, that was that was the topic for the record. I wanted to write about the space race. Um, I thought it was such a fascinating period of, of sort of human history, sort of unrivaled really. Mm. Um, and and the same with with every valley. You know, it's, it was kind of a push against you know the success, the unlikely success of the race for space, and it was a kind of attempt to. You know, to sort of move away from where people might have thought we might go. You know, mm. less obvious subject matter. So, um, it was an attempt to come back down to earth, really. You know, literally, and sort of examine more everyday sort of superhuman mm. activities of, of you know working down a mine, um, rather than these kind of you know these other otherworldly humans who kind of sat on top of ballistic missiles and blasted themselves into space. 
Uh, as you said, the bright magic of the idea of Berlin had been in, in your head for, for some time. Is it basically because you worship at the Church of Kraftwerk, who are from Dusseldorf, as we know, but still very Germanic? I think it's more it's more Bowie. It's, it's, yeah? it's almost entirely low. And and with a very respectful nod to Acton Baby as well. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and once you kind of get into those stories, you, you know, how much of low is really written in or had much to do with Berlin? And it's just the same for Acton Baby. You know, yeah. this, this kind of this gap between myth and reality and sort of illusion and reality runs quite a lot through a lot of the stuff that's come out of Berlin and Berlin itself. So I just found examining some of those threads was really quite fascinating. But you actually, you went there, the campaign for real Berlin. You yeah. actually did it. Yeah, method music. music. Yes. <laughs> and, and you apparently were doing a bit of sort of psychogeographic wandering around to absorb the, yeah. the Berlin of the mind. Well, you know, just everybody experiences cities differently, don't they? And you kind of, you find your own way through them. You find your own places, your own paths, your own routes. And, and I kind of wanted to try and, you know, as much as, you know, do the research and, and watch watch the kind of archive that I normally do and read the kind of books I normally do. But yeah, just just pad around the city really and just mm. kind of get get a feel for it. I've done it a lot on tour when we were there anyway. I, li- I like wandering around cities we're in when we get the time. But yeah, I wanted to kind of expand that and, and just kind of, I think the word is a flaneur, is it? You know, flaneur, yes. I don't know if the Germans have a word for it. So yeah, it had to be a flaneur. The Germans will have a word for it. <laughs> <It'll be laughs> but it's well hiking thousand years. Yes. <laughs> it will probably be long. Yeah. Yep. Tell us about Blixer Bargeld from Sturzender Neubarten and Nick Kevin the Bad Seas because he's on. And apparently working with him was a rather intense experience. It, well, according to his sound engineer, yes, he turned, turned <laughs> to me in, in the midst of my sort of full-on sweaty flow and said he was enjoying watching me have an intense experience. He was in Berlin while I was in London during lockdown, so we met via, via you know, via the internet. And then, and then, uh, when I was in Berlin at Neubart Studio, he was in Portugal, so we never met in person. But still, the oh. force, the force of his personality, and and. He really gets into a performance. I think you can tell just by listening to it, but okay. to, to see him performing as well as hear him, he was definitely very, very committed to it. Um, very, very committed to it. I think I think he did a, a, a great job. What I like about this one, which it shares with your, your previous stuff, is that it kind of feels like it runs deeper and longer than the rock and roll era. There's a lot of Weimar here. There's a lot of Fritz Lang here. It reminded me a bit of Babylon Berlin, the fantastic TV series, which I keep banging on about on these various podcasts, which it's is amazing. Great. Yeah, it's great. Um, are you essentially celebrating the decadent art of the that the, the, the Hitler drama? to drive out yeah the sort of the de- degenerate art uh, if i could get my words out that mm. you know that goebbels sort of you know set up to destroy um i think so yeah because you know i think when i first started thinking about making a record about berlin i was thinking well it'll be you know stasi third reich the wall the airlift you know all, all the kind of more more obvious and more kind of confrontational stuff but then looking into why i was actually drawn there and what it was about that city that fascinated me it wasn't really any of that the wall was part of it but it was more about you know the kind of the creative history of it and why it would seem so uniquely well set up for for people from all over europe and all around the world to kind of be drawn to and and to kind of tap into its energy almost and create these new and unusual works of art that they did there it's, it's been at the home of so much kind of new and bonkers art that's then gone on to become mainstream i just i really wanted to get further into that and move away from the, the darker times degenerate art that's what we want that's what we're all about <laughs> so i i was listening to the album again yesterday um i mean i obviously listened to it a few times before we reviewed it a couple of weeks ago and i was listening to it again yesterday and what i found quite interesting is that it's a visual album because I, I have a habit of closing my eyes when I listen to music so I can concentrate on the sound. And I found that when I did that with your album, actually it evoked imagery, like quite vivid. It, it's kind of Stendhal syndrome um, a little bit, you know, that you can't listen to it without having pictures pop up in front of you. 
Mm, that's really interesting. That's, that's that's nice to hear. Partly that might be because it's instrumental, I guess, and then mostly instrumental, especially side B. Um, so maybe there's a bit more space for that kind of interpretation and for for the listener's mind to do a bit more of the work rather than you know be kind of told these are the things that we're singing about or talking. Yeah, about. there's a sort of cinematic sweep to it that makes you want to match up yeah. an image to what you're listening. To. Well, tapping into some some kind of film music was was quite a deliberate choice as well the link between kind of metropolis and blade runner and um you know tapping into the sort of vangelis sound world yeah. um for, for that score and, and using some of the same equipment um was was a kind of way of you know when you start to think about how do you recreate an urban landscape at night with artificial light that's kind of what i was what mm. i was picturing i mean my head just goes straight to blade runner so so musically it kind of it veered that way as well and because those two films are so connected in terms of influence it just it yeah. made sense do the germans have a word for blade runner they probably do don't they they probably do what if playing children's games could make you mega rich? But remember, where there are high rewards, there is high risk. Lose and you die. This is the basic premise of Squid Game, the new Korean series and global smash hit on Netflix. A sort of Takeshi's castle meets Saw. We follow the protagonist, desperate loser Song Ji-hun, played by Lee Chung-che, as he battles to do the kind thing in a game of survival where cruelty is rewarded. Most of it is in Korean, but he has a taste anyway. Jenny, how did you get on with this from your magical fairyland of writing <laughs> romantic fantasy? <laughs> Yeah, no, this is actually, I review TV quite a lot in, in, uh, on, on the radio. And, and so, you know, I'm always kind of saying, right, I've got to watch this. And this, my husband and my eldest sat down and watched it with me. Whereupon my eldest disappeared upstairs and watched the rest of it. <laughs> he's, he's a teenager. He's not like nine or anything. He's, he's six. And then the next night when I went to sit right and, and watch the second one, my husband got in a big snit with me because I hadn't waited for him. It's that, you know, it works that well. It's that quick. The, the the primary colors, the design aesthetic, it's so simple, it's easy to understand. Uh, you do have to keep watching it if you're watching the subtitles. I don't know what the dubbing's like. The subtitles are kind of adorable. They're all like, you fluffing bad man. <laughs> um, and it's, um, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't not enjoy it. I think all TV shows should have everybody wearing the same outfits but with identifiable facial distinguishing but <laughs> one guy's got glasses. And numbers mm -hmm. in case you can't. Yes. <laughs> in case yeah. they don't work. I love that. I love the primary uh, colour palette. I thought that really set it apart from other dystopian things which tend to reach for the easy thing of you know muddy grey and browns. Yeah. Um, what do you think sets it apart from stories like the hunger games or is it broadly in that genre yeah i mean i think that was well, it's battle royale isn't it was the first one hmm. i was aware of and as soon as i heard of battle royale i thought brilliant that's a brilliant idea it's just a brilliant idea and i think it is i think it's one of these ideas that's hard you know what would you do if you were in a situation where you just had to kill everyone you didn't want to um here, oh here's the thing i read this morning is um <laughs> they didn't expect it to be quite as insanely popular as it has been obviously <laughs> uh, the card 
that is handed to the Lee Chung Chi character at the beginning by the, mm. the smartly dressed chap that has a telephone number on it was a real telephone number. Oh my goodness, it's like, been inundated, has it? Some poor guy spent two days of torture of people phoning, phoning him up <laughs> before. It's now a disconnected number. But again, instead of using the fake TV exchange that American and British TV uses, Every number that's around that or slightly different from that has also been getting called nonstop every day. Does this mean that there's a significant number of people in Korea who actually do want to play the squid game and are quite happy to in kill Korea people? In Korea and Well, they, Yeah, well, it, international rates do apply. Yes, does it, I mean, it could well be people are up for this. Ooh. I, I just want one of the tracksuits. I think in a yeah. lockdown year, everybody is quite <laughs> on a green tracky bottom. Yes. <laughs> Jay, Jay, did you manage to watch any of it? Yeah, how, how did you get on? Well, I'm I'm a little bit squeamish about violence, and from what I read in the Guardian ahead of time, it's it's sort of along the lines of if you can stomach the events of the first episode, then you'll enjoy it. So I thought, oh god, that sounds like it might be a bit sadistic and grim for me, but it wasn't actually that bad, um, like violence wise. Um, so I kind of I got halfway through the second episode, and for me, it was just it was a bit slow and a bit kind of. They, they really like the the setup for the main character. They really, I mean, when you see a man. When they're trying to make the point how desperate he is, and he's playing one of those games where you're trying to grab the toys, like that's yeah. weird. that's kind of hammering the point <laughs> home. If he's so desperate, he's plumbing his, his you know, his losings from gambling into his, his last kind of coins into this machine to play. I, I just it was kind of laying it on a little bit thick, and I just found you know they, the second episode they kind of they, they step away from it a bit and then they come back. I, I, hmm. I wasn't really I that think grabbed that's by. How it. adorable you find that actor! I did I like him. He was fantastic. Yeah, he was fantastic, but. Yeah, I just, I, I wasn't quite on board with it. Did you not enjoy the aesthetic? Because it does echo a little with your most recent video, brightly, people in, people in brightly coloured <laughs> uniforms. Yeah, I, th- I thought that looked, that looked the, the kind of the lead character, though, the kind of the, the guy with the black mask, I was a little bit, oh, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit hammy, isn't it? Yeah, like, that's there. why it's great. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 OK. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to be the you know the voice of That's all right. <laughs> I, I mean, what I liked about it, I think, is that it's dystopian without making the world dystopian so it doesn't create a different reality what it says is that this reality for people who are very poor Mm. is dystopian Mm. Um, so it doesn't create some kind of parallel future where things have got so bad that people are playing these sort of games to escape you know the 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 horror that is their life it says people are ready to do that now as yeah. the phone calls to the number show. And also, it's the, the, the people uh, who are playing the game, they're not sort of poor because of what fate has visited upon them. Most of the characters we discover are hugely in depth through their own action, right? There are many of them. Yeah. There are various shades of quite bad people mm. from just from ridiculously irresponsible, like our lead character, Jihan, uh, down to actually outright gangsters mm. who are in the hole for a load of money. And there's a great deal of psychological complexity there. What I'd like about it is that there are no black and whites here at all. There's heroism to be found in the villains and there's villainy to be found in, in the heroes. It's a great multi-stranded thing in that every one of the characters that are foregrounded has a bit of contestable backstory. So we have a North Korean refugee yeah. who has been hardened by her experiences 
to the point at which she is indistinguishable from a villain, and yet she has a point, like all good villains. Um, and the, the older character, who, yeah, who I co- well, completely love. Player one. Um, player How long one. has he been there? I have, I've not gone that far into it. I have a theory it, that, that he's actually controlling I, the game. I think it's <laughs> quite kind of wonderful to put someone in there that is, you know, from my personal history with mm. mum having Alzheimer's, to see someone in there that is basically in that process of... Um, dementia. Yeah, I, I think it's a, just a wonderfully brave thing to do that, and to find out that actually he's an advantage. Yes, uh, as you go through it, you find that having him on your team is yes. a is a big advantage. Um, Jenny, can I ask you something? Do you think the cultural distance for Western audiences helps or hinders the story? Because I'm in two minds about it. Well, it's interesting because my brother lives in Seoul. And I haven't been able to visit him uh, because, well, oh, yeah, because they're all stopped. Um, but it's interesting talking to him about it. Uh, and he says Sal is going to be the new, in fact, he said this before Squid Game came along, is going to be the new Hong Kong, the new Singapore, the place all the culture's coming from, hmm. all the music coming from. It's the absolute centre of the world as far as he's concerned. And he's been saying that, he's been living there for a year and saying hmm. this is, where everything is coming from. So actually, no, I don't feel a big cultural difference, even though I don't understand what happens if you slag off BTS on the internet, right? (laughs) I don't understand that, but I don't consider it because we're foreign. I just consider it's because I'm old, really. Um, So no, I didn't feel that came into it. I felt very much, in fact, that you're watching it and you could consider the decisions that any human being would make in these set of circumstances, which is why it has appeal, except for the witch. And I love her. I just love her. The witch with the kids. Yeah. That this is the gangster. I don't want to get too far ahead of anyone. Uh, she's completely unpredictable in all sets of circumstances and therefore who I would aspire to be. So I think culturally <laughs> what Korea is doing is interesting, but I don't see a huge uh, difference. I think it's a very pop culture. I agree. I, I found them very, very relatable because what it's really about is the cast of characters who are in the game got there by stepping too close to the line and stepping over the line. They are in, in their own way addicted to risk and danger. So when you see the moment when this is not much of a spoiler because it happens very early on, everybody's given an opportunity to vote to leave the game. Yeah. And, and people don't back. only vote, they, they narrowly vote to leave and then come back because they are drawn to that flame because they are risk addicted. The idea that most of us look at it and go, my God, there's no way on earth I would re-enter that place, but they can't stop themselves. It's the death instinct. That's one thing that really sets it apart from other examples yeah. in that genre. They are there willingly. Yeah. Oh, I think if it was about systemic poverty, well, no, obviously, yes, obviously, there are things pushing (laughs) them into it. But what I'm trying to say is that they're not, you know, they're not, they don't have a gun to their head saying you have to play this game. They have a societal um, pressure that's making them do it. The other thing that I think sets it apart is that most of the genre focuses on sort of sadistically complex games. Mm. They do the opposite. They play children's games. Yeah. Incredible, incredibly simple with rules you can understand in 10 seconds, but the stakes are extremely yeah. high. And I think that's quite I think that's quite a punchy metaphor to say that we are born fucking cruel, actually. Yeah. If you look at a playground, 
you will not see uh, uh, the the image of humanity that we like to paint for ourselves. Yes. You will see something much more primal that we then cultivate ourselves out of little by little, rather than this notion that we're all born little angels yeah. and somehow become corrupted. And then we go on Twitter and cultivate ourselves back into it. <laughs> cruelty, yeah. recreational. Anyway, no, I, I loved it. Trump is such a short was because he played by playground rules, you know, I think, and everybody that kind of thought they were civilised couldn't do a thing yes. about <laughs> All I was going to say is I loved it. I highly recommend it. I started watching grudgingly a couple of episodes to do this podcast, and I'm now one episode from the end. And begrudge the time I'm spending in this studio <laughs> right. for not being at home <laughs> watching it. As regulars know, we like to ask our guests to bring in a current favourite tune for your delectation. And as more recent listeners know, we can't always play them. Curse you, rights holders. But we can add them to our ever-expanding Culture Bunker playlist. See the show notes for a link. Jenny Colgan, what have you brought in for us? I, well, I, on Saturday, I didn't get to go and see Scrutability, about which I am devastated, but I am taking my dad to see Rufus Wainwright, which... I think as a, a kind of, you know, hones in on my demographic almost <laughs> perfectly. It's going to be a sea of Breton tops. You know, you can see it from here. Oh, my God. And a lot of gin and tonic. Anyway, nonetheless, he's still Rufus. He's still brilliant. Uh, this is his new album. It has no great shocks or changes in direction. The album is called Unfollow the Rules. And I think you're going to play the title track. We are indeed. And it's on the playlist right now. WH Lung are an electronic outfit from Manchester. They're named after a local Chinese supermarket. Why not? And their second album, Vanity, is out right now. A mix of kraut rock, electronics and huge bangers. Yes, Jay Wilgoose, your ears are burning. It was recorded on lockdown in Todmorden, but it doesn't sound like it. A deep dive into dance music. It is inspired by Anton Chekhov, Andrew Weatherall, Iris Murdoch and Robin of Dancing on My Own fame. What will we think? This is Good Time, spelled G-D-T-Y-M, because life is too short for spelling. Jay Wilgoose, I'm going to guess this is up your street. What did you think? I think parts of it are, parts of it are not. I don't, I don't want to come across as Mr. Fussy, but mm. um, yeah, I, I, I like the general kind of sound world of it. I like the, the sort of the pulsing sort of synths and, and the, the very kind of 80s-esque nature of a lot of it. For me, because the voice is such a personal thing when you're mm-hmm. listening to a band, for me, the voice is a little bit too smooth at times. And I, I preferred it when it had a bit more. In, the, in this track, he has a bit more of an edge to it, a bit yeah. more of an energy. But I found sometimes it wasn't quite enough for me to kind of grab onto because it was, it was every time I kind of tried to grab it, it was just kind of slipping away. If that, does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's, it's insufficiently abrasive or perhaps characterful. Do you think people sing too well these days? Uh, well, he's he's technically clearly a very very gifted yeah. singer, but I I just kind of prefer it when when things go off the off the lines a little bit, yeah. and, and it does happen in the chorus of that one, so I, I did enjoy that. But I think production wise, it's you know it's really well put together. 
Yeah, but it's just it's just that the voice for me wasn't quite it just didn't quite connect personally. W- were you aware of them beforehand? Because the debut album Incidental Music made uh, quite a splash a couple of years ago. Or are they new, are you new to them? Totally new. Yeah, okay. I hadn't hadn't heard anything by them before at all. So yeah. as a sound person with a world full of gear, I mean it is really clipped and precise and disciplined. You know, bass really punches. As a Sonics person, what did you think of that aspect of it? Because I mean, there's you know, for instance, the track Pearl in the Palm is all beautiful, lo- lovely arranged arpeggios, loads of analog synths. I think it's really it's extremely skillfully put together. I don't like kind of drawing parallels, but I'm mm-hmm. going to do exactly that. But I think if you were to put this alongside something like Working Men's Club, and, and it's kind of in the similar sort yeah. of world, but Working Men's Club has just a bit of kind of extra grit, and ex- it's almost like distortion character sort of edge to it, which for me, that's kind of where my ear is slightly drawn mm-hmm. slightly more towards that than, than this kind of slightly shinier version of it. But, yeah. but it's definitely done with considerable skill and craft. Yeah. yeah. That track that we just heard, Good Time, it's very new order it's even a certain ratio why just that early 80s kind of electro funk like pre-house version of electronica why does it res- resonate with what i am now going to call today's young people do you <laughs> think you're asking totally wrong person <laughs> <laughs> you're closer to them than i am i don't know it does seem like the 80s are having a bit of a moment or, or almost like an imagined version of the 80s are having a bit of a moment because there's mm. all, all sorts of stuff being chucked in there isn't there but there's something about that it's the guitar more than anything and, and the guitar is kind of used quite sparingly on, on the record i think but where the guitar comes in it's got that chorus effect on it you just you just you're instantly in that world aren't you mm. um as, as for why it connects i mean maybe it's maybe it's kind of a sort of nostalgia thing maybe it's that's what these kids were listening to when they're kind of growing up and they kind of harking back to that but it feels a bit early for them they're all sickeningly young aren't they so yeah they must well, be 90s kids probably. i gotta say the, the the bright young things that work at podmasters uh when it's the morning and it's like we try and choose a year of what music to play at random on on spotify there's always like 1981 1982 1978 so they're very very connected to this it warms my ancient heart actually th- yeah that they've got a kind of an interest in the analog synthesizers of the uh, of the pre-war years. Well, maybe it's partly what I was talking about as well. You know, to claim credit for it, maybe, maybe it's partly <laughs> that, that you know stuff then wasn't quite so so precise, and it had a bit of kind of in, inherent instability, mm. and it had a kind of inherent roughness. Like New Order's stuff is sequenced on you know very basic equipment, so it's kind of it's probably moving around a little bit more than everything being so on the yeah. grid these days. Mm. I didn't um, the the sequencer on Temptation by New Order. I think was triggered by Stephen Rice playing the hi hats. So all the did it, did it, did it, did it is him hitting a cymbal. It's yeah. actually programmed, so you don't get much more analog than that, do you? No, you're relying on human timing and human, you know, inaccuracy, and that's 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 what makes the music kind of really, really pulse. I think. Jenny, what what did you think? Did were, were W H Long uh, persuasive for you? I, I like I, this is kind of like in the 80s when Kylie brought out the locomotion and everyone was complaining that she hadn't done it in a proper 50s style it's like Robbie Williams's um American songbook album um except I don't think it is like that I really 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 liked it the first single I ever bought which no one ever really remembers but you guys are all nerds so you probably will was um that German major tong song by Peter Schilling um, oh wow Anyway, this uh, this sounds exactly. How old like that. are you? <laughs> was this a wax, was this a wax cylinder? <laughs> very, very, very old. I'm not quite old enough to remember the German B side version, hmm. but um, that that was my first ever single. So uh, you know, it's and that's it's to me with less sense of ears, it sounds exactly like that. It's dreamy pop, eighty synth. Like you guys, I can't understand. You know. On the other hand, my teenagers like music that sounds like a bear eating a washing machine, so I have no idea of what they respond to, but I just, I really liked it. I just really, really liked it. There is a little pinch of I'm in love with the German film stars to be found in this as well. Not yeah, necessarily exactly the pacing. Like, but... In fact, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking at one point, I could, I could only like this better if like every second verse was in French, you know? <laughs> 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 like, 
you know, Derrida and some dogs. Um, the opening track, um, Calm Down, and the, the refrain is Let the Anger Out, is extremely smooth and soothing, but I felt it was a bit of a microaggression against Scousers, actually. Calm down, calm down. <laughs> uh, hell of a tune, though. I, I really enjoyed it enormously. I mean, there are an awful lot of moods on show here. There's a tune called Arpy. It's enormously spacious and chimey, and yet the track way, Ways of Seeing is just all about fat bass and crunch. It's like a full-service Andrew Harrison record, this. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Alex, what did you think as a raver now and again? A raver now and again, uh, but mainly a classical music enthusiast. So I'm going to lean into the second tradition of those and say that I kept trying to conduct it a little bit faster. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I kept trying to kind of hurry it along a tiny little bit. I just found it like that first track. I thought, why is my Bronski beat record sort of losing a few revolutions. Is it 33, not 45? Yes. <laughs> um, having said that, I loved it. It's yeah. it's entirely my cup of tea. I'm just, you know, being extra fussy. Mm. Um, it, you know, like, like I would have liked it a little bit punched up. Mm. There, there is, there's not a track on there that I didn't think could benefit from a little bit more oomph. Never knew you had such a fondness for Gabba, Alex. I can <laughs> see you pointing away at a Rotterdam rave. But um, I, I actually like the relaxed pace because it, it connects to me with the like the very early days of house music when 120 beats per minute was considered fast, and this is a bit slower than that. Joe from the band says, we were writing music that affirmed how much we missed dancing in sweaty rooms, enjoying the company of a collective of beautiful, friendly strangers, much like this podcast studio right now. <laughs> um, I, I know very, very little about them. Or that actually makes it more attractive, I think, yeah. you know, when it's a mystery. Is there value in music that's just music? No backstory. You've got no idea who they are. You know, two facts, Manchester and Todmorden. That's it. I think you want a bit more than that, don't you? Mm-hmm. Right? I kind of, I feel like that's what's missing with the whole streaming thing is often you do just get a name and, a, you know, and a brief about, and that's kind of all you get. Whereas, you know, if you're the kind of obsessive geek that I am, and I suspect maybe others in this room, you mm-hmm. want to, you want to be reading the sleeve notes and seeing where it was recorded and who recorded it and where they're from, and you know, read, getting a bit more kind of the depth and, and substance behind mm-hmm. it. it. Kind of it, it increases increases my bond with that kind of music anyway. Yeah. But yeah, I, I would want a bit more yeah. than that. More pop music. How about a current favourite tune from you, Mr. Will Goose? What have you chosen and what are they all about? Well, I thought I'd better go with something Berlin-based, hadn't I, really? Um, mm-hmm. You know, Walk the Walk. And um, this is Laura Lee and the Jets. Laura Lee is uh, is one half of Gurr, who we uh, we did a song with the other half of Gurr, Andrea Casablanca. And she's just kind of doing, I, I would guess it's not solo stuff, but she's she's out with a new band. And this is a song called Caterpillar. It's, it's, it's just really good sort of krautrock, really, with beautiful melody. You know, you don't often hear krautrock with, with a female vocal over the top of it. So it's, it's quite refreshing. It's kind of harking back to a very established sound, but also doing something new with it, which is quite a tricky thing to pull off, I think. Can you say krautrock in Germany? Do they give you, like, do they, their eyes narrow and it's just like, I think it's not very nice? I think they're fine. I mean, they're fine. We, we definitely say worse about them. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a listen. This is Caterpillar by Laura Lee and the Jets with an E-double-T-E-S. Finally, a bit of music history in film form. In 1968, the Beatles, heard of them, escaped the Western celebrity whirlpool by travelling to a remote Himalayan ashram in Rishikesh in search of spiritual enlightenment. It would change the band profoundly and probably the world a bit too. 
Indian writer Ajoy Boza has adapted his book about the episode into the movie The Beatles and India, now available to rent on Apple TV and elsewhere. There's an awful lot of Beatleology out there, but does this particular scene still have more nuggets in it? Here is the trailer. Did you enjoy the trip over to India? The journey was terrible, but the trip was all right. We had a nice holiday in India and came back rested. When George and we got connected, it was like wildfire, you know. Paul phoned George and said, there's this man called Maharishi who's going to come to talk about meditation. <laughs> Maharishi was the most powerful, magnetically charismatic person I've ever met. Their manager, their best friend, was now gone. He was found in his second floor bedroom just after two o'clock this afternoon. For that moment in time, Maharishi replaced Brian. The Beatles were coming to stay with the Maharishi. The whole world and its media is going to be here. While my sitar gently weeps, The Beatles and India. There's also an album, songs inspired by the film, with Beatles tunes from that period redone by current Indian artists coming out at the end of October. Jenny Colgan, how much of a Beatles fiend are you on a scale of one, two, owns a range of Beatle wigs? <laughs> oh, really? More Beatles? <laughs> you know, I like the Beatles, but oh my God, it just never stops. I feel like I've seen more home video of them than I have of my kids. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, I was I was unkeen and I kind of, you know, sat myself, and actually, and then I found, it's kind of two halves for me, this one. I found the first half where George was getting into sitar music extremely interesting and I liked the interviews with the kind of, you know, very surprised old sitar makers yes. who, you know, had literally just been making sitars one day and then suddenly they had the world's media going bananas. I thought that was interesting. As soon as they got to the ashram, I have zero interest in charismatic culty meditation male figures i promise mm. you i have no time i just about made myself finish it because i have no interest in that but i thought the first half was actually very touching i liked paul's story about paul being really bored because george and ravi shanker were just noodling about on their stars <laughs> all the time i found that very relatable um so yeah I'd, I'd say stick with it for a good 45 minutes and then once they get into the maharishi stuff i I am out. I Did say. you not enjoy it at the very end? Because and this is not a spoiler. Because anybody who has any idea about this story knows what happened. Did you not enjoy it at the end though, when it turns out the Maharishi is a massive charlatan trying to capitalise on the Beatles, and the Beatles really, Beatles really get a cob on with the Maharishi and, and try to? You'd have to give have surprise for that to happen, and for it not to have happened with every single charismatic leader in the history of humanity. I'm afraid. Andrew, that is true. Although for the Beatles generation, that kind of was the first time they got ripped off by a guru. They got ripped off by all the other subsequent gurus. It was no longer <laughs> a surprise. But this was the first time for this lot. So they, you can give them an, an element of kind of innocence token there. Oh, the surprise to me was it wasn't really slavishly about the Beatles. It was about cultural difference and, and rock star credulity. And the way, you know, it, it, this is a film that can simultaneously show you people going reverently around the ruins of the ruins of the Beatles stayed and treating them like religious shrines. But you could also have, you know, an Indian guy was at the time talking about the arcane nonsense and the absolute rubbish that these people believed. And um, a particularly striking Indian 
Indian woman who was there at the time talking about how faking enlightenment was the only way to get out of this ridiculous place. <laughs> I love uh, Yeah, she was great. And it's also, it's about fame because you, you can actually, uh, I, you know, having been born in Liverpool and, you know, been in the music press for years and years where, where you are carpet bombed by the Beatles and it's very hard to escape from the Beatles, it's hard to find a way to empathise with them. And this helped me empathise with them. Nobody had lived a life like the Beatles had lived before, globally famous. And there's, there's this really poignant bit where George goes, if you love me, leave me alone. You know, well, she's kind of, still really cross, the women yeah, in the thing. She's she thought furious. She rather <laughs> yeah. than by the sheep being appalling. Jay Wilgus, all musicians have to love the Beatles. It's the law. You don't get, you don't get your <laughs> band licence unless you say, yes, I heart Beatles. What did you think of the Beatles and India? I enjoyed it, and I, I had the same reaction to Jenny. Actually, I, th- I found the first forty-five minutes, especially focusing on George, because I think he's, he's he's an interesting character, and I found that part of it very interesting. And as soon as it got onto generic culty nonsense, yeah. I was kind of oh, we've there seen... is a dozen Netflix series yeah. about that right yeah. now, and, yeah. and I have similarly no time for it, um, no time for it at all. So I, I did kind of tune out a bit when that when that happened. But I, I liked it as a portrait of a band, you know, trying to to expand their horizons and trying to do things differently. And I think there's a line that John says something about. Um, you know, if people want to see progress, but if you want to see progress, you have to you have to change. Mm. Um, which you know, it's, that's kind of at the heart of pop culture, really. At the heart of stuff that sticks around and that that really has kind of merits over several generations is is the people who do kind of remain relevant are the people who who embrace change in that way. And I thought it was interesting to see a band at the height of their powers. In in the middle of that process, it was just a shame the kind of culty stuff got got mm. in the middle of it all. Yeah, I mean, well, the t- you know what was really interesting about it that I think they could have explored a lot more was people saying, "Look, we were twenty years out of independence, and you know, we yeah. were a brand new country, and we were looking for a culture and, and how to be relevant, and th- how, this is what that meant to us." That was interesting, and they mm. could have talked about that, I think, a lot more. Yeah, I think it's interesting that it's called The Beatles and India. It's not The Beatles in India. It's not just about The Beatles. It's about the, the kind of interplay between the two. You, there could have been a little bit more about that. I really loved, though, the footage of the of the Indian bands that have been inspired by The Beatles, yeah. the Indian dance clubs where everybody's frugging and jitterbugging away. Just the pure nature of that film stock of that time and the ultra-artificial fabrics of that time. You can see the static electricity sparking off the screen. It was just, it had a lovely innocence and also a, a, a great difference. It didn't feel like every BBC4 documentary you see on a Friday night with the same B-roll and the mm-hmm. same footage. And here we are, it's the King's Road, must be punk rock. Oh, it's Carnaby Street. Hello, mods. It felt very new and very refreshing. And uh, that that I enjoyed. Jay, your, your, your music is very filmic and very film inspired. How did you feel about it as a, as a work of documentary making? Um, yeah, I think it's it, any film about the Beatles in which you can't use the Beatles music, which is pretty much most of them mm-hmm. artificially sanctioned, it's, it's, it just kind of it cheapens the whole thing, I think. So, you know, the, the score was kind of half inhabiting that sort of, you know, westernized Indian music world and, and did that well. But I just, I, you know, talking about some of these songs that they wrote there, yeah. um, for me, that another source of frustration with it was that from a musical point of view, you couldn't really dig into to you know the more direct influences on their sound i mean perhaps we all know them so well that you don't need to mm. but it would be nice to have a little reminder a little flash here or there to be fair i actually thought they played quite a good game on, on dancing around that massive hole in the middle of it because yeah. the original music is quite good and the sound alike are kind of passively beetled flavored without without being <laughs> your actual beatles beetle flavored alex what did you think I, lo- I love that both our guests basically had ringo Starr's reaction took one look at the <laughs> astro and went yeah. i'm out yeah, what, what i say? am out he says <laughs> i need a hotel it's like a butlins yeah <laughs> <laughs> um i mean uh i 
really liked the stuff about India. Yeah. I found that genuinely interesting and genuinely interesting, the fusion of the music and the instruments um, being introduced into popular music in the West. And, you know, the Beatles being a gateway, a cultural gateway, mm. both ways, uh, interestingly, because, you know, it also gave rise to Beatle-type bands in India. So I found that incredibly fascinating. I guess my complaints about it are complaints about music documentaries in general. Yeah. So the the first one is that there are bits of it which are quite esoteric, which rely on you being a big fan of the thing. So unless you can recognize instantly each Beatles voice from a crackly archive audio, half the time I didn't know who, who was speaking because all Scousers sound the same. Oh, thank me. you, Alex. Um, <laughs> Paul McCartney in the room but, somewhere. But you, know, but you know what I mean, unless you're very clear in your head about the order in which they did things and released albums, etc., yeah. it jumps back and forth in time, assuming yeah. that you know everything about the Beatles mm -hmm. already and this is a nice little add-on. And I thought that was a shame because... Actually, the India aspect of it mm. is, I think, appealing to a much wider audience, which is why it should have been widened and made more accessible. My second complaint is that it's musically ignorant of everything except that narrow slice of things mm. it looks at. So, you know, um, exoticism and a subpart of that Orientalism is a massive part of Western music for yeah. centuries, you know. Mm. And to look at that, to to ignore everything from Handel's Belshazzar all the way to Delib's Lacme or the Golden Cockerel or um, you know the Pearl Fishers by Bizet, and suddenly present Ringo Starr as the the first Western musician to become even vaguely interested. To be fair, it wasn't exactly Asian it was George music. rather than Ringo. No, no, but the, you know, I mean, look yeah. at look at fifties musicals like Kismet and things like that. You can't you can't just airbrush everything you're not interested in. Hmm. and present the thing you're interested in as groundbreaking when it stands on the shoulders of giants. And it wouldn't take much. It would take a, a sort of two-minute segment to establish that this is maybe the, the, the second for sure, if not the third wave of, you know, uh, Orientalism and uh, uh, to hit Western music. Basically. Yeah, but then within the kind of... You know the what what was considered to be the meaningless, trivial, world off world of radio pop music that was considered to have no value, no meaning, just worthless rubbish for kids, which we now know became the wellspring of pretty much everything we love in in in, in modern culture. It was the first time it happened in that world. Nobody in the world of rock and roll had picked up a sitar before, and that's valid. I, 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 it does set out at the start of the film, which I was really surprised that, to see. To me, that's vaguely valid yeah. because. Because pop music 10 years before that was Vic Damone singing Strangers in Paradise, mm -hmm. which is based on the melodies of Borodin doing precisely, mm -hmm. you know, incorporating uh, Asian melodies into and the film does show, music. And this was a surprise to me, who's osmotically absorbed a lot of Beatles stuff, that George Harrison's mum really liked Indian music. Mm. Which was, I thought I it was fascinating. Yeah, and I, I don't know where she was getting it in Liverpool, but, you know, she listening to Indian music on the radio, how? I don't know. Um, that, to me, was surprising and, 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 and interesting. There was a lot of stuff about it that, uh, mm. that I think have immense merit and it, yeah. it was an interesting thing and I watched it from start to finish without oh. ever begrudging the time I yeah. was spending on it so 
What was your favourite bit? Was it Ringo on his uh, suitcase full of beans? Oh, <laughs> just Ringo turning up and going, this is like Butlins, just walking out. I loved it. No, I actually, Ravi Shankar, I ah. think. And, and that was a, another underdeveloped part of it. Mm. Um, because Ravi Shankar was in many ways the the counter uh, example to the Maharishi. Yeah. You know, he was the one, he was the person who was genuinely spiritual, genuinely able to become that cultural bridge between yeah. East and West. And genuinely actually did help George yeah. change it to a different person. And is a is an astonishing musician in his own right. You yeah. know, he had he had nothing to gain. Yeah. From from you know it was it was a partnership of equals in yeah. many many ways. So yeah. I, I loved that. I, I loved am massive equals. in a country of billions of people. What what makes you think I need to like you know impress somebody? <laughs> and, you know the, the Preston Lacano or whatever. Anyway, too much Beatles in this film about the Beatles. We're almost at the end of the show, so it's time to add to our guests' ever expanding collection of the greatest records ever made. Jay, you've broken the mould with something from outside the world of pop music. Thank heavens. <laughs> what have you gone for? Uh, well, I've gone for, I, I just think it's my favourite piece of music ever, so I tried to answer the question honestly. It's, it's the intermezzo from Cavalleria Rusticano by Mascogni, which, which, you know, is, I think I first encountered it on the credits of Raging Bull, but, um, mm. you know, it's in Godfather Part 3 as well, obviously as well as being part of this very famous opera. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, it's such a beautiful piece of music so sweeping and romantic and and emotional and and yeah it's it's just my favorite piece of music i absolutely it's a wonderful piece of music and here it is Last some culture for Alex. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen. It's. It, I think it's wonderful mm. because the context in which the music has been used is absolutely the context in which it's used in the opera. Right. So it comes between two incredibly violent things happening. Basically, a, a, a massive row in a village and then yeah. a stabbing. Uh, is this incredibly serene? thing and that's how it's been used in film so in you know in raging bull and the godfather it's yeah. always used at to slow down moments of unbearable violence and i think that's kind of wonderful that it was you know the original intention of the composer is being honored in the way the film the piece of music is used today we're at the end of the podcast, which means closing time chatter. What will we be talking about over the last glass of soju before we disappear to fight for our lives on a Korean island? Jay? Well, I was interested in the the sort of... I, th I think they intended it as quite a light-hearted thing, but Pitchfork kind of re-evaluated some of their reviews and upgraded some scores and downgraded some others <laughs> and did it in a very kind of... Uh, 
even when they're trying to be lighthearted, they're very self-important. So <laughs> <laughs> I found it very, uh, there was considerable chat about it online and, you know, how could they downgrade Interpol's debut album from 9.5 to 7.5? Oh, you know, all this kind of stuff. But, um, I just found the concept of, of reviewers reviewing their own reviews uh, interesting. And, and you know, I don't, I don't know how you'd, you'd have felt about it, Andrew, you know. In, what, reviewing time, my own reviews? Yeah, in your time at Q, if you just... Do you like, stand by yeah, what you said? Do you said? really think Be Here Now's good? I mean... <laughs> it's a, I, I, I have got clean hands on that one, but you dare try Be Here Now. Come on. There are one or two things that I really don't want to draw attention to. That I, I look back and I go, actually, you didn't listen properly or you were... Mm. Uh, you're early in your career and you were trying to make uh, draw attention to yourself rather than being honest. There's one or two yeah. that I think that's just wrong. But, uh, you know, in the good old days, we'd all be cranking out 30 reviews a month, you, yeah. know, in the, the, in, you know, in the glory days of the music press. So, no, I think this is wrong, but I do think we should be allowed to uh, change the score of football games retrospectively. <laughs> so I'm changing the 1977 <laughs> FA Cup final to Liverpool 5, Manchester United 1. There you go. OK, yep. OK, how about you, Jenny? There, actually, there is only one topic of conversation amongst writers this week, depending <laughs> on when you're listening. It's in October, which is Bad Art Friend. Uh, a piece uh, in the New York Times that went viral about a woman who donated a kidney to a stranger and another woman who was a writer who the first woman desperately wanted to be friends with, who took this woman's story about donating her kidney and turned it into a story of her own about how awful the first woman was. And it's a terrible, terrible, nobody comes well out of it, but it's about stealing other people's life situations, putting your own spin on them, what you're allowed to do, what you can't, what's friendship, what being a writer is. And also the very worst thing is it came to court, went to court and they subpoenaed the private message groups of the people involved. If you can imagine your WhatsApp groups. All oh, started. no. I'm boil, boiling my phone right now. <laughs> Jesus. For one horrific moment there, Jenny, I thought you were going to say that she took the woman's kidney back rather than took her story. <laughs> I think the kidney is well out of the entire situation, quite frankly. Um, so they subpoenaed uh, the phone records uh, to see what they were saying about each other, and it was as gruesome and as awful as you can imagine. And the, the, the awfulness of it is the stakes before it went to, to court where the short story that got published earned the writer $425. And now they're both in court. It's a disaster. Is it? But, however, that in itself is now a marvellous Netflix series that the, <laughs> that the kidney donor can sell and therefore pay off the hair legal fees and win in the end. But then, of course, then the original, the writer who pinched it will then write the inside story of the Netflix series, and we'll just go on and on and on <laughs> in, a, in an ouroboros of meta on this one. That's terrifying. What about, what about you, Andrew? Mine is even more terrifying. It's the new dating app, Pom or Power of Music, which will match you up with people who share your musical tastes, right? Oh, geez. This sounds absolutely terrifying. I don't want this. Well, my, given, given, given that my <laughs> I favorite, do not I, want no, this. No, no. Given, well, given that my favorite bands are uh, Pet Shop Boys, New Order, Public Service Broadcasting, British Sea Power, Half Man, Half Biscuit, Madness... That, I think the answer would come up not found. There's nobody <laughs> for you, nobody at all. I, I think that's the less frightening scenario of the two, Andrew. Well, yeah. There's <laughs> if a... the answer comes up found, well, that's when I'd be scared. Yeah, a clone of myself on the other side of the world. I mean, my, my wife and I, we share some bands that we both like. Half Man, Half Biscuit is among them. But generally speaking, I mean, she likes... Which one of you gets the man and which one... Gets the biscuit. <laughs> that takes the biscuit, Alex. Um, you know, so... But, but mostly, I mean, her musical taste of mine... 
they're quite quite far apart. You know, she likes stuff on killed rock stars and all this kind of stuff. And I like soulless electronic music with no mm-hmm. feelings in it. That's sort of a great partnership. You shouldn't come together with people who've got the same musical tastes as you, should you? You've got to have you've got to have diversity in the relationship to make it work. Or no, am I completely wrong? No, I think you're right. You went kind of a Venn diagram, don't you? Where mm. the, the circles aren't just on top of each other. Absolutely, <laughs> you, yeah. You, you know, that's but that's just true in all kinds of relationships. And also, you know, I've 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 got a couple of gig wives who come to gigs with me when my wife's I'm not gonna go and see that. Take one of you know, take your gig wife to say that and yeah. it all works out absolutely fine. Yeah. There you go. So don't go on palm. Sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. Alex, what about yours? Um, so uh, the Tory conference this week used blue cassette um just after um Boris Johnson's mm-hmm. speech and friendly fires. <laughs> put out the following statement. We do not endorse the Conservative Party's use of our track blue cassette. Our permission was not sought and we have asked our management to make sure it isn't used again. If we'd have intended them to use it, we'd have named the track Blue Bunch of Corrupt Wankers. (laughs) (laughs) Statement ends. (laughs) Conservative and Republican governments are always doing this. They troll the Do they not know know. what's going to happen? It's like every Republican ever walks out to born in the USA and then Bruce Springsteen goes you do know that's about the working class being absolutely shattered by you and they go ha ha we don't care and they do it again except Trump who walks out to YMCA even funnier <laughs> yeah. I mean. even, even, what is it? Alex it's got construction workers in it that's the bedrock of America it's also got Native Americans Donald Trump oh no you didn't realise did you anyway and that's the end of this week's Culture Bunker thank you to our guest Jenny Colgan thank you for having me and Jay Wilgus of Public Service Broadcasting, new album out now. Thank you. Yes, it is. And thank you, Alex. And listeners, thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily, and this time next week with The Culture Bunker. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Alex Andre. The assistant producer was Yana Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production.